0: Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. But we're launching into a brand new series today. The title of the series um, is Living on... The edge. Uh, how many of you feel like you live on edge most of the time? Um, that's different than living on the edge. Um, but the question that comes up in my mind when I first heard the title of the series is the edge of what? Right? Because um, some of you were probably on the edge of some things, just trying to get your kids out of the house today. That's why you ended up at third service. Um, like, no, you don't understand. What I, I'm always on edge. Um, but but what we're really describing is actually a really important moment in the life of Israel. It's actually a moment that is a second chance for the nation of Israel, but we'll get to all that in just a moment because first I want to describe um, a a word that I actually think as the church we have not done a very good job of giving definition to, which has allowed us to believe some things about this word that maybe aren't true, maybe aren't biblical, maybe are actually damaging to our view of God and the way we represent him. In the world. And it's this word, unconditional. You've heard it, right? And before, I mean, like, it gets thrown around quite often. And what I've discovered over the years is that um, our expectations will ultimately color our experiences. In other words, we could have a very similar experience, but our expectations, what we anticipate, what our preconceived notions and ideas are will actually taint that experience. We will view it either as good or bad, as positive or negative based on the assumptions that we carry into it. Uh, I'll just give an example. Something that happened out of the blue, and I uh, recognized this as we were looking through old pictures the other night with our girls. um, But my daughter, Olivia, on her birthday was the earthquake uh, that happened, right? Um, That just shook everything. And as I was watching the little video right after the earthquake, right? All the power's out. We're just sitting in the dark, trying to be encouraging as a dad. But Olivia is just distraught. She's like, why did this have to happen on my birthday? Like, my birthday's ruined forever. Um, And Katie, who's sitting right beside her, who is my adrenaline junkie, Katie's like, I wish there was an earthquake on my birthday. (laughs) Exact same experience, two totally different responses to it. Because often our expectations, how we choose to see the world, will usually get what we're looking for. That's what I've discovered over the years. So I'm back from Uganda. It's Tuesday. I jump in my car to head to our staff meetings. And when I get in my car, the Christian radio station is on, you know, because good Christians only listen to the Christian radio station. I'm just kidding about, okay, anyways. No more of that rap music, Dalton. Um, I've heard you playing that stuff. Uh, Like, they just happened to be on the Christian radio station. Um, And here's what I heard as soon as I got in the car. Um, The survey is back. It is confirmed now the number one thing that non-Christians dislike about Christians is that Christians are too, what do you guess? Preachy, busy, judgmental. There it is, Elder Gary got it. Too judgmental. And the very next thing that they say is this, let's go to our callers and let's discover how could we be less judgmental. In fact, honestly, I think this is part of the reason that Christians often feel this sense of obligation to like, love, hug anything that's posted. On social media. We feel this obligation somehow to like and love those things that we could easily look at the scriptures and say that Jesus blatantly calls unholy and unhealthy. But we feel this sense of obligation to repair the image of Jesus in the world somehow. And so immediately following the survey, we're going to go to, so how can we be less judgmental? But that's not my first question. My first question is, are we? I mean, it's within reason that maybe we're not judgmental. It's within reason that maybe it's judgmental to call us judgmental. But often we immediately begin to go to try and solve a problem someone else told us that we have without ever asking the question, is that the issue? Is it what the problem really is? Are we judgmental? And by the way, how do you define judgmental? I was listening to a speaker that I actually really respect and enjoy listening to, but he made this statement. This is his quote. It says, I try to remember this rule. If I am judging someone, I'm not loving them. You can't love someone and judge them at the same time. Which sounds so noble and unicorny and rainbow but is it true? Is it true? In fact, in Deuteronomy, Israel is going to be standing on the edge of entering into the promise that God has made to them. The land, he says, he's already given them possession of. They're going to be standing right on the edge of that. They're going to be living on the edge for the second time. Because the first time, they actually didn't get to enter into it. In fact, the first time, This God who loves them deeply, who nurtures them, who's rescued them, who cares for them, passes a judgment on them that brings consequences, or as my girls say, quonsaponses. And Israel is now going to be standing on the edge of the promise for a second time. And if you've been traveling with us through the Scriptures, you know by now that we sort of take this approach. We're going to start in Genesis and just make our way through the Scriptures. And so we've gone Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then we got to the thrilling book of Numbers, which actually shouldn't be titled Numbers. The original title was The Wilderness or The Wilderness Wandering, but it's called Numbers for a real specific reason. It begins with a census of the people, a counting of the people. And then it ends at the end of the book with another census, another counting of the people. And those two bookends are there for a really specific reason because in the middle, something happens that brings consequences for the nation of Israel. The first census has everyone who was delivered out of Egypt, rescued by God, and they're on the edge of entering into the promise, but they don't believe God. They act out of fear instead of faith, and the quonsaponses that come on them are that the entire generation of fighting-aged men will die in the wilderness instead of entering the promise. And the second census in the book of Numbers is actually letting you know that that has happened. And here's the new generation. And the question in Deuteronomy is, will they enter the land? Will they believe God? Will they be convinced? But if you're Israel and you believe that God never ever brings judgment on you, that he cannot be unconditionally loving and judgmental, then you will have concluded long before this moment that God must be failing at his job. Because in the book of Deuteronomy and in Numbers and certainly in Joshua, you see a God who deeply loves his creation, who deeply loves his people, and yet at the same time can pass judgment and bring consequences. Try applying this logic um, to other things in life, like parenting, right? I can't love you and judge you at the same time. And so Susie comes running in the room and she says, little Jimmy, Jimmy stabbed me with a fork. You're like, really? I can see that he stabbed you with a fork, but honey, I need you to know something. I can't judge Jimmy and love him at the same time. You're on your own. Right? Like, what if in parenting, I didn't believe I could bring consequences or I could pass judgment on something, um, and so then I just would not deal with the situation, but it would actually be the most loving thing to do to bring consequences, to pass judgment on behavior or attitudes or those sorts of things. What if you applied this to policing? Imagine a police officer, right? He's off duty. He's at home. His wife runs into the house. She's carrying two large bags of cash, um, and she's got a little black mask on, and she's like, honey, I just stole this from the bank. We don't have to worry about anything ever again. And he's conflicted in this moment because he's a police officer. And even though she's his wife, he should arrest her. But he comes to the conclusion that I can't pass judgment on her. I can't put her under arrest and love her at the same time. I'm sorry, your honor. I let her get away with it. Or apply it to teaching. We tried to apply this to teaching, right? Little Jimmy, I don't know why I pick on Jimmy all the time, but little Jimmy is in the classroom and he hasn't done a lick of work all year long. As a matter of fact, he's just sat at his desk picking his nose and eating glue while all the other students are working. And all the other students are like, why did Jimmy get an A and we all did all the work? And the teacher's like, listen, I cannot judge Jimmy and love him at the same time. He gets an A just like everyone else got an A. You wouldn't conclude that Passing judgment or bringing consequences for behavior or actions or attitudes is somehow in conflict with actually loving someone. In fact, it could be the loving thing to do. Let me give you a definition for judgmental. You're gonna love this. Judgmental, of or concerning the use of judgment. How dare you? You know the number one thing I hate about Christians is that they Use judgment. I mean, it's literally the definition of judgmental. The only conclusion is that they mean something entirely different than what the actual definition is because no one would say that using judgment is wrong. To judge means to form an opinion or conclusion about. Here's the reality. We live in a world where withholding our blessing of someone's decisions is called bigotry and having an opinion is considered hatred. It goes both directions uh, for sure, right? But we live in a world where you and I withholding our blessing of someone else's decisions is identified as bigotry and having an opinion that disagrees with someone else is considered hatred. And here's what I would say, before I try and cure a disease that someone else told me I have, I should get a second opinion because I could spend my whole life trying to repair something that might not actually be the core issue. And trust me, we got plenty of issues. Right? We got plenty of things that as the church we need to deal with. But only a fool would believe a fool's diagnosis of their problem. Only a fool would embrace a hater's hashtag of who they are. And just because someone tells you you're something does not mean you are. It's worth pausing for a moment and asking the question, is this actually the problem? Here's how I would say it. It is not the job of the church to fix the perceptions of the world about it. Let me say that again. It is not the job of the church to fix the world's perceptions about it. It is the job of the church to be obedient and faithful to Jesus. And the rest is up to him. And if we were just obedient and faithful to Jesus, there are lots of image problems that would be solved and there are lots of things that we would not believe we need to spend our time and energy fixing. It is not the job of the church to fix the perceptions of the world. The job of the church is to be obedient to Jesus. And here's what you need to know being obedient to Jesus will inevitably lead you into conflict with the world. Or at least Jesus seemed to think that that was true. And he's right sometimes. But let, let me read it to you Matthew 24, verse 9. Jesus speaking they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake or mark 13:13 13, 13 and luke 21:17 and you will be hated by all for my name's sake or john 15:18 just so we get all four gospels in if the world hates you know that it hated me before it hated you some of us have spent our entire lives trying to dress Jesus up enough that the world would ask him out But the reality is that there will be people who hate you more the more you become like Jesus. Jesus guaranteed it. My job is not to be loved by everyone or to dress Jesus up enough that they'll ask him out on a date. The problem is they might like him on Tinder, but they're not gonna like him when he gets tough, right? The reality is that you can put as much cheese on broccoli as you want, and I will still hate it. There are people who ultimately will not accept you love you or appreciate you they will label you and they will brand you and you just need to get over it because the job of the church is not to make jesus look good to the world the job of the church is to be faithful and obedient to jesus and the rest is up to him Mm, that's a good word pastor i know that's such a good word yeah (laughs) you're gonna have to help me here Because I could go three hours. I'm easy if I... All right, here we go. Unconditional love does not require unconditional approval nor my personal blessing on all your decisions. Unconditional love does not require unconditional approval nor my personal blessing on all of your decisions. Withholding approval of individuals' decisions is not the same thing as withholding love from them if you could just banish that from your mind, that I'm withholding approval, and that's fine. That doesn't mean I am not loving. It does not mean I'm simply judgmental and I hate. The reality is it's actually really critical in the world that we live in that I actually have thoughts, ideas, and opinions that are in alignment with those of Jesus. And here's why this matters for the book of Deuteronomy. Because God loves unconditionally, and he disapproves, and disciplines frequently. And if Israel believed that God would always approve of their decisions and he would always indiscriminately bless everything that they did, what they would conclude by the end of Numbers for sure and probably by the end of Exodus or Leviticus is that God must not be unconditionally loving. And yet his love is actually revealed in his willingness to hold them to account. In fact, Deuteronomy 8, one through three, describes it like this. Be careful to obey all the commands I am giving you today. Then you will live and multiply and you will enter and occupy the land the Lord swore to give to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for these 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would obey his commands. Yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone, rather we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. If I believe unconditional love requires unconditional blessing and approval, I will misread God's word and misrepresent his character to others. Now, God has invited Israel into a particular kind of relationship. Moses is going to remind them of this in the beginning of Deuteronomy because the question in Deuteronomy is, will they miss it again? Will they fully step into what the Lord has for them this time? And so God's invited them into a covenant relationship is what we call it versus a legal contract or a contractual relationship. And I would say that many of us as Christians, I discover, um, are still trying to live in a transactional relationship with God, a contractual relationship with God. And there's a couple of reasons for that, but here's the distinction between those two. In a transactional relationship, it actually puts me in the driver's seat. In a transactional relationship, I did X, so you must do Y. I, I gave in the offering, so you must Bless me financially. A transactional relationship is actually idolatry. It's if I do this, you owe me this. That is not the kind of relationship that God had invited Israel into. It's not the kind of relationship that he invites us into. But it really is built around this idea that I did my part, I gave in the offering, therefore you give this. That is very different than a covenant relationship. Now, here's the difference between the two. Love and affection are not required in a contract or a transaction. Imagine, I'm thinking about it this way. You were at the grocery store here recently. Um, You got a cart of groceries, which cost you $10,000. And it was just the leftover things that were there. Like it's not even toilet paper. And so like you get up to the counter, you're already frustrated. The lady at the counter is clearly new on the job. All you want is to give her your money so you can leave with your stuff, right? You're like, I'll bag it myself. I don't care. Right, But you don't feel any compulsion to be in a loving, affectionate relationship with the gal at the register or the guy at the register. You're like, here's my money, give me my stuff, this is a transaction, I'm out of here. But a covenant relationship is actually very different. Love and affection are actually central. They are at the core of a covenant relationship. That's why in a covenant relationship, I can choose to love you even when you fail To do what you said you were going to do. This is advice I give to young couples all the time, especially in premarital, because it's way better in premarital than to discover this later. But many people embrace what they call the 50-50 mentality when it comes to a marriage relationship. If you'll go the 50 yards and I go the 50 yards, we'll meet in the middle neath the old Georgia pine. I start walking your way, you start walking mine. Like, I haven't always listened to Christian music. Anyways, um, this idea that if you do your part and I do my part, our relationship will thrive. I'm telling you that is a recipe for disaster in a marriage relationship. In fact, it's a recipe for disaster in any covenant relationship. What you have to come into the relationship with is this. I'm gonna go 100 yards every time. You're gonna go 100 yards every time. And there are gonna be moments that I can only go 25 and you're gonna come 75 and you're gonna beat me. And there are moments that you can only go 10 and I'm gonna come 95 and I'm going to meet you. But if we believe that it's this 50-50 thing, I do my part, you do your part, and we can have a good relationship, what if I only make it 49? The relationship's over. What you and I are actually called into with God is this covenant relationship and a contractual relationship. In a covenant relationship, I choose to love you even if you fail me. In a contractual relationship, in a transactional relationship, I was actually never required to love you to begin with. I was exchanging goods and services for a cost. So Moses is going to spend the first part of Deuteronomy reminding Israel of what God's covenant relationship with them looks like. Deuteronomy 1:30 30 through 32. Listen to this description. The Lord your God is about to go ahead of you. You're on the edge of the promise. Here's what he's saying. I'm out in front of you. You're just following behind. You're coming in and receiving what I'm giving. The Lord your God is about to go ahead of you. He will fight for you just as you saw him do in Egypt and in the desert where you saw him carrying you along like a father carries his son. This he did everywhere you went until you came to this very place we were looking through pictures of our girls when they were little you know that um app where you can like identify all the faces in your pictures and you can see every picture that has that face in it for some reason my phone confuses Mike Michaud and I quite often and if you know Mike whatever (laughs) but my doppelganger but my girls were looking at these, I was looking at these pictures at some time. They were just so small, so little. And we would like be on hikes or we'd be on a trip. And I would see these pictures of me carrying them on my shoulders, right? Because they couldn't go the distance. Their little legs couldn't handle what we were doing. They couldn't make it to the top of the mountain, whatever it was. And what I realized is that that's exactly what God was like for the nation of Israel. In fact, it's what he's like for you and I, that from the time we were delivered, he was willing and able to carry us all the way. If I couldn't make it my 50 yards, he was quite all right with that because he had already committed himself to me. Moses wants to remind them of that. From the time we left Egypt till this very moment, he has carried you. He will continue to do so because he is a covenant-making God. Mm. So Moses is going to identify that God rescues and nurtures Israel and... He chastens and disciplines them. Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 6, it says, Think about it. Just as a parent disciplines a child, the Lord your God disciplines you for your own good. So obey the commands of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. He's making this distinction between enjoying the relationship in which God has done all of the work and flourishing in that relationship through obedience as we experience his discipline and his chastening, and both are unconditional love. This brings me to possibly the most important word in the book of Deuteronomy, and maybe in the Bible. It's this word, remember. Like I said, um, we just got back from Uganda. We got to have an experience in Uganda this time that I've never gotten to have anyplace else That I've traveled. It just so happened that um, one of the individuals working with the ministry that we were working with is also a safari guide. And so he took us on a short safari and we got to see all kinds of stuff. I mean, we got to see elephants and giraffes. Those are weird animals. The more I watched him, was like, that's a dinosaur is what that is. Uh, in fact, I took this picture of an elephant while we were there. We also got to see six lions. Um, we only lost one team member. It was Dalton. So, you know, whatever. Uh, oh, no, he's here in this service. <laughs> Anyways, he actually had an injury. I can tell you more about it later. I'd love to tell you more about it later if you want to ask. Um, but I won't go into it now. But I looked over at him as we were sitting underneath a lion that was up in a tree. And I said, he can smell your leg. And uh, anyways, I was super excited. But we saw elephants, and one of the things that our guide was reminding us of is that elephants have extraordinary memories. Maybe you knew that, maybe you've heard people talk about it before, you got a memory like an elephant, um, but elephants really do have extraordinary memories. They can remember faces of individuals and encounters for up to 40 years Later, I can't remember 40 minutes ago. Like, but elephants can—they have these long memories. In fact, elephants are in a handful of mammals that recognize their own face in a mirror. The other animals are like you're like what's that? Ah!" You know, attack. But elephants like oh that's me. Like they're really brilliant, but their memories are extraordinary. In fact, there's lots of research out there um, that describes elephants and the memory that they have. So you can take a young elephant who's in a herd during a season of drought. They've never left the preserve that they're on, but there's no water there, and so they begin to travel to find water. And they will find water. hundreds of miles sometimes away, they find water. And then fast forward 30 years. And now that young elephant is now the matriarch in the herd, and they have another drought. And what they've discovered is that that elephant can remember the exact location of where the water is under the sand. And they will go to it 30 years later and begin to dig and find the water. Brilliant. I mean, just extraordinary. Elephants have really extraordinary memories. Humans, not so much. <laughs> Seriously, like, like this is the reason that the president of UK- Ukraine right now is like, I hope the world hasn't forgotten because he knows how we work. He knows how our news cycles work and we are so easily distracted and so quickly forget something that was really important to us just a moment ago. It's a tendency that we actually all have. And in Genesis, through Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, in those four books, um, the words remember or the word forget appear 11 times. But in the book of Deuteronomy alone, the words remember or forget appear 24 times in that one book. It's a theme in the book of Deuteronomy for a really specific reason. Because when we finally get what we wanted, we often forget where it came from, and how we got there. In fact, it's a tendency that all of us have. Deuteronomy 8, verse 10. After you enter the land, when you have eaten your fill, be sure to praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. But that is the time also to be careful. Beware that you in your plenty do not forget the Lord your God and disobey his commands, regulations, and decrees that I am giving you today. For when you have become prosperous and have built fine homes to live in, and when your freezers are full of salmon and moose, and when your bank accounts are fat and your investments are flourishing along with everything else, be careful. Do not become proud at that time and forget the Lord your God. Do not forget that he led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions where it was so hot and dry. He gave you water from the rock. He fed you with manna in the wilderness. Here's what I've discovered over the years is that when we experience comfort and security, they are often followed by amnesia and idolatry. It's true whether you're a pastor, it's true whether you're a business person. I have lots of friends that I can think of who as they have described what God has done in their lives, taking their lives from ruin in their marriage relationships and their relationship with their children and their business endeavors, taking their lives from ruin to flourishing. And in the early days, I can hear it in their voice. There's like this sense of gratitude and thankfulness and joy for where God brought me from to where he brought me to. And over time, it begins to shift. Over time, I begin to hear less and less of that. Over time, they begin to believe that I have to be at work today. I can't show up at church. I can't go fellowship with other believers. I can't spend time in the word because my hands have made me prosperous. It happens for pastors too when you're just working yourself to the bone, when you're growing and you're gifting and you're calling, when you're building a church, when you're doing all of those things, and then suddenly you're in a position where you have everything that you ever dreamed, everything that you thought that you needed, and you can begin to think that I deserve this. I built this. That is a dangerous place to be because comfort and security often are followed by amnesia and idolatry. And the truth is, when we're prosperous, we can become prideful without even knowing it. And pride will lead us to worship what we have created with our own hands, which is the definition of idolatry. I created this I must continue to serve this. I must continue to worship this. And that is what he's warning the nation of Israel. You're about to enter the land. You're about to experience the goodness of God. You're gonna live in houses you didn't even build. You're gonna be in cities that are walled and you didn't build the walls. You're gonna harvest from vineyards that you didn't plant. And it's all gonna be because I carried you through the wilderness, but you're gonna be tempted to believe that it's because of your work and your effort. And that will lead you to idolatry. I need a reminder every now and then that even my ability to create is a gift from God. And my trials and my testings are also a treasure from him. Deuteronomy 4, verse 9. I love when the scriptures put exclamation marks in. Watch out! That was for free. I saw some of you dozing off. Watch out! Be careful never to forget... What you have seen. Do not let these memories escape from your mind as long as you live. Be sure to pass them on to your children and your grandchildren. Here's my question When was the last time you sat down with your family? The last time you sat down with your spi- spouse? The last time you sat down with your journal and you just recorded all the goodness of God? Like all the things He had done along the way, how He brought you from where you were to the place you currently are, whether it's been a two day journey or a 20 year journey. Like when's the last time you sat down and just recounted? those things because remembering is central to our ability to stay the course and give glory where it's due to him and to him alone. It's so important. My challenge would be take time and do it. I've I've realized in my role in ministry right now, prior to this moment, we were living hand to mouth all the time. Like we were running our own ministry. I clearly was not very good at it because we never could pay the bills. Like and, but we knew God had called us to it. And my son, Caleb, who has turned, just turned 25, my son, Caleb, um, he has had these experiences in life where we did not have enough money to even buy groceries. We're living on campus at ABI. We don't have money to pay rent. And we just pray, God, we need milk, bread, eggs, ice cream for sure. And then also like just listed a few things and literally the next day, those things showing up on our porch in a grocery bag. This is before I could pray my prayers on the internet so that everybody knew what I wanted. Like we had just prayed them in the privacy of our house and like, and he fundamentally believes that God is our provider, not his dad, right? Like it's so evident. And now in this season of life, my genuine concern for my girls is that they are not experiencing want at the level that creates dependency on the goodness of God? How do I create that environment for them so that they know I'm not their source? He is. And part of the way to do that is by recounting, remembering the faithfulness of the Lord. Which brings me to the last piece, listen and obey. I may have overstated the importance of the word remember because the word remember shows up 24 times in the book of Deuteronomy, but this other word, this other word that is probably not as popular as the word remember um, because it actually requires some action of you and I. This other word shows up more than 70 times in the book of Deuteronomy. It's the word obey, which I know is your favorite word. It's my favorite word for my kids to remember. Uh, but it's actually this command that shows up more than 70 times in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 5 verse 12 is a key example of it. My family and I read this passage every time we do the Sabbath together. We sit down at the table. I'm like, girls, what's the passage we're gonna read? They're like, Deuteronomy 5, verse 12. It's the 10 commandments relisted because Moses is, Moses is going to give all the commands again to the nation of Israel, to this new generation, so he knows that they know them. But Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12, this is the Sabbath command, and here's how it begins. Remember the Sabbath day, which is really important because if you don't remember it, then you can't do the next part. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it. These these things go, you know why? Because it's not sufficient to simply remember what the Lord told you to do. There's this element of acting in obedience to it that is critical to you thriving in the place that he's called you. And so this ring right here actually represents the two candles that the Jewish people to this day light on the Sabbath. And candles represent this, remember and observe. It's what this ring says in Hebrew, remember and observe, because it's not sufficient to simply remember. I can remember a lot of things that the Lord said. In fact, I heard someone say one time, um, if Christians just did what they've already heard the Lord tell them to do, they would be busy for the rest of their lives. Man, that's a good word. Like, I didn't even make it up. I just quoted it. It's from someone else. But like, it's true. And and here's the thing. There's a critical element to remembering and observing. And it actually involves our ability to listen. To pause and to hear what the Lord is saying. There's a relationship between remembering and obeying that requires the critical role of listening. I'm going to wrap up with This, but um, here this past week, uh, one of my girls and I got permission to share the story, just so you know. I just told her I wouldn't, you know, use names because there's three of them, and so you're just guessing. My son Caleb, I used to say the same thing to him. Caleb, I won't use any names. And I stand up (laughs) and I'm like, and then my son, who I won't name, but I only have one child at this time, right? Like, but for my girls, you know, it's like legit, it's an amenity. Uh, But here's what I'd ask: Please don't run to them after the service, and be like, I heard a story about you, who was it? Or eventually, I will not be able to tell you any personal stories until they're like 22, and then I can start telling But just hear it. I won't tell the name, but can I just tell the story? Yes, you can tell a story, dad, okay. We got this pool, it's like a 5,000-gallon pool, like, you know. Somebody sold it to us for 20 bucks. I thought, man, it must like have 80 holes in it or something. It's perfect. It's like 5,000 gallons. It's three foot deep. My girls are having a blast playing in it. I get back home from Uganda. We're out there just the other day, and, and I'm in the hot tub because the pool is way too cold. I'm like, I have to wear a wetsuit in it. But my girls, they're Alaskans, and they're like, yes, bring it on. Hypothermia is my friend. That's, that's what they <laughs> learn in elementary school here. So, so like they're in the pool, and one of my girls is up on the ladder, and it's like this rickety Ladder, right? I mean, like, it screams tetanus. Um, like, there, if you slip or do something wrong, there is going to be a laceration, and then mom will have to take you to the doctor. But the real challenge is I'll have to empty that pool and get all the blood out of it and then refill it. And that's, yeah. it's going to take a long time. So I'm like, girls, don't jump off of the ladder and do cannonballs into the pool. Okay, Dad. So, so there she is. She's on the ladder, the unnamed child. She's on the ladder, and, and I'm like, hey, no name don't jump off the ladder into the pool. She acts like she doesn't hear me, you know. I'm like, yo, kid without a name. Don't jump off the ladder into the pool. I know, Dad. (laughs) Twitch. I don't know you did Like, But I'm cold and I don't want to get out of the hot tubs. I'm like, whatever. Literally, I turn around like three seconds later, and what's she doing? Yeah, she's up on the ladder. I'm like, hey, no name. I said, don't jump off the ladder into the pool. Except for I said it really nice and (laughs) Christ-like. And this is what she says to me. Oh, I thought you said, don't jump off the ladder onto the floaties in the pool. And I'm like, that doesn't even sound like what I said. Like, and you were like, I heard you. I'm like, Woo. but she was sincere. She, was, she just didn't pay attention. She didn't listen. She didn't actually hear what I was trying to say or even the heart behind why I was, which is kind of like us. There's a critical element to obedience to God and it's actually listening to him. Not just the command, but his intentions. The intentions of his heart, the intentions of a God who does love you unconditionally, who is cheering for you, who does bring quonsipances into your life so that you could fully experience all that he has for you. And often, that discipline and that chastening, these reminders along the way, if you would listen, if you would hear them for what they are, you would discover that he is madly in love with you. He loves you unconditionally and he also willingly and freely brings correction into our lives. This is what Israel has discovered about God. And if you and I could embrace that, we could believe that, we could fully step into all that he has for us. So here's the question that I have for you. Would you stand to your feet? That's not the question. What is the last thing that you heard God tell you to do? Maybe it was in a sermon. Maybe it was as you were reading your Bible. Maybe it was in a worship song you were listening to. Maybe it was just in a quiet moment as you were praying. Maybe it was as you were journaling. But what was the last thing that you heard God ask of you? Maybe it was to forgive that person and you just haven't decided to do it yet. Maybe it was to step out in faith in this area. Maybe it was to give sacrificially in some particular way. Maybe it was to give a word of encouragement to someone else. But what was the last thing that you could identify that you heard the Lord asking of you? And then the second question is, have you done it? Because I find that often we're waiting around for the Lord to give the next instruction and we haven't followed the last instruction but it's actually a process. It's actually a journey that he has you and I on. And maybe he's withholding something in this particular moment because he's waiting for you to actually take the step of obedience so that you could move off of the edge of what he's promised and step fully into taking possession of it in your life. I'll tell you over and over again, in my own life when I examine it, when I hear the testimony coming from people in the body of Christ, Often we're asking God for direction in this next thing, and yet we haven't even acted in obedience to the last thing. It may come to mind for you immediately. You may need to pray about it today. You may need to just spend time listening, but God, what is the next thing you're asking of me? Because I sense that in this room there are people who are living right on the edge of fully stepping into all that he has for you. Keep bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. The scriptures, and this is one of the things I love about them, It's the reason we're kind of going straight through the scriptures, is the scriptures actually take and they drag this Old Testament story, this experience with Israel, this real narrative, they drag it all the way into the current day. And in Hebrews, the author is actually going to use this moment, this story, to describe a moment for you and I, right here and right now. And in Hebrews 3, this is how it's described this is why the holy spirit says today when you hear his voice don't harden your hearts as israel did when they rebelled when they tested me in the wilderness there your ancestors tested and tried my patience even though they saw my miracles for 40 years Be careful then, brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning away from the living God. Remember what it says. Today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. So God's rest, his promise is there for people to enter. But for those who first heard this good news, they failed to enter because they disobeyed God. So God set another time for entering his rest, and that time is today. I don't know where you find yourself in this moment. I know that in a group this size, there are people who have never said yes to Jesus. There are people who thought they said yes to Jesus, but what they recognize is they said yes to this transactional relationship, and he's actually invited you to believe him in a covenant relationship. That when we talk about obedience to God, what we're really talking about is the ability to enjoy all that he has already given you through repentance and forgiveness. He's already delivered Israel from Egypt. He's already rescued them from their oppressors. What's happening now is he's asking them, will you live in the fullness of what I rescued you for? And so Jesus, my prayer, right here, right now, is that for those who have never said yes to you, both as their Savior and their Lord, would you cause a repentance to well up, a recognition of how kind you are, how good you are, that just like it was for me in that moment when my heart was broken over the ways I had offended you, and in that same moment you just rushed in, letting me know that you had already covered all sin for all time, that if I would yield my life to you, if I would surrender myself to you, that you had everything I needed for all that you called me to be and the ongoing process of surrender so I could experience the relationship that you've designed me to enjoy both here and forever. So as we confess with our mouth and we believe in our heart that Jesus, you are exactly who you said that you were and that God has raised you from the dead as we look to your cross as the place where our sins are forgiven and as we declare our dependency and our need on you, would you be the one who carries us on your shoulders like a father carries his child. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play.